Please be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, this morning we're going to be reading from Psalm 88. We'll read all 18 verses of the psalm. So as you are finding um, your scripture, finding it in your scripture, uh, we are told that this is a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a maskil, or a wise meditation of Heman the Ezraite. And it is a psalm of lament. So I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, beginning in verse 1. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call out to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do the spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord, in the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Well, a couple of months ago when Andrew asked me to speak today, he told me it would be really great if I did a talk on lament. We had studied Psalm 88 in the men's group, and he mentioned that a message on lament would be really good because he had never given one. (laughs) So apparently, if you're a shrewd pastor, lead pastor, the strategy goes something like this. You've never given a sermon on a topic, so you recruit not the second string or the third string, but the guys who hit, who's hitting about sixth in the batting order to try to get up and take a swing at it. Does everybody see what's going on here? <laughs> but seriously, we Americans don't do lament. We know how to turn anything into a party. We love to celebrate. Our funerals, even, are turned into celebrations of life where we hoist a toast to Cousin Eddie Let the good times roll, work hard, play hard, this bud's for you, we're living the high life. Our idea of utopia is meeting George Carlin's Rufus, reminding us to be excellent to one another and to party on, dudes. No, Bill and Ted? No? The American church doesn't do much lament either, if we're honest. Just go to your favorite contemporary worship service or turn on your favorite praise and worship station, K-Joy or K-Love or K-Yay or whatever, 
And chances are there's, not, there's going to be a lot of happy, happy, joy, joy. And that's great. I'm, I'm, please don't hear me being critical. But there's generally not going to be a lot of sadness and mourning. Why? It doesn't mark it. Truthfully, it's just kind of not what we want to hear. No, in general, we Americans don't do lament. But the Bible does plenty of lament. Because the Bible speaks to the full spectrum of life's experiences. The book of Job, as you know, is almost entirely a book of lament. Some 65 psalms are at least partially psalms of lament. The book of Lamentations is entirely dedicated to Israel's national lament. And no one demonstrated lament more than our Savior, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, who lamented through his entire journey to and on the cross. What greater lament has been spoken than, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? More to follow on that. So lament, what is it? We use the word a lot, or sometimes. Well, the word is linked to mourning, to wailing, crying, growing faint, groaning, withering, grief, and despair. And biblical lament may be defined as the process of crying out our sorrows to God. And the pattern of lamentation, particularly in the Psalms, is usually one of the writer crying out in despair and eventually finding comfort and transitioning to praise. For example, Psalm 42 begins, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And concludes by reminding itself to put its hope and its praise in my Savior and my God. But this is not the case with Psalm 88, right? Psalm 88 seems to be planted in God's field of poetry as a reminder that sometimes we can live in a world of suffering and sadness where we can feel pounded and defeated by the overwhelming waves of life and we can't lift our eyes up. We simply don't have the strength. Now, all of us, I suspect have felt this type of deep sadness to varying degrees. Some of us have had feelings of exhaustion and defeat. Some of us have battled personal demons and find ourselves deeply wounded. Some of us have felt deep loss and cannot escape the anguish of our soul. A heavy blanket of sorrow drapes over our shoulders. The waves pound relentlessly. Whatever the circumstances, disquiet stems from this deep sorrow. We're forlorn. And like Heman, darkness is our closest friend. And so it was, at least for a time, with Heman the Ezraite. Heman was a grandson of Samuel, which you'll remember was the final judge of Israel. According to scripture, he was a songwriter and he was a musician, one of three main musicians appointed by King David, for, quote-unquote, the ministry of prophesying accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. First Chronicles 25 tells us that he was from a well-known family, a man blessed with 14 sons and three daughters. First Kings 4 tells us that he was known for his wisdom amongst the com- company of Solomon himself, so a very wise guy. Heman was well-respected, highly esteemed. However... Heman only wrote one recorded psalm. And when he, saw, when he penned Psalm 88, darkness was Heman's closest.
closest friend. So in this, pa- in this message, I'm going to try to do two things. If you're taking notes, that's kind of my intro. I'm going to try to hit two main objectives. First, I'm going to cover how Heman gives us a blueprint for godly lament. And second, I'm going to explain why, ironically, pain and lament, perhaps more than anything else, validates, validates the truth of the gospel. So let's start with part one, godly lament. And within this, I'm just going to give you three areas that Heman helps us. If we revisit the text from the beginning, we see the beginnings of godly lament. Specifically, Heman is crying out to God, his Savior. Verse 1, Lord, you are the God who saves us, saves me. Literally, you are my Savior. Verse 9, I call to you, Lord, every day. Now, let's not rush past that. Because as some have noted, suffering tends to evoke one of two responses in us, right? Either we run to God or we run away from God. And uh, let's face it, when suffering hits us face on, head on, it's going to be accompanied with a thunderous why. Why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Right? And following very closely behind is going to be the enemy's whispers. You see, God doesn't really care about you. All that church stuff was fine as long as things are going well, but God doesn't really know what's going on. And even if he did, he doesn't care. If he really did care, if he really did love you, do you think he would let this happen to you? Really? Now, if we swallow that hook, we are very likely to respond with, Bitterness, withdrawal, anger, and self-pity. We are also very likely to run to places we frankly should not go. To our drug of choice, to our habit of choice, to our painkiller of choice, to our idol of choice. And uh, if you doubt me, Just do a Google search on alcohol sales during the COVID lockdown of March and April of 2020. Because the data is there, and it's as plain as day. So where do we go? Where do you go? Where do I go in times of suffering? Do we follow the path of Heman? Or do we run to our false gods? So that's thing one. Thing two, notice that Heman squarely puts the bullseye of sovereignty onto God. Verse six, you have put me in the lowest pit. Verse seven, your wrath lies heavily on me. Verse eight, you have taken me from my closest friends. Heman wasn't just angrily pointing fingers. Heman knew exactly who the sovereign over all creation was. Now, this causes all kinds of problems with our modern sensibilities, right? Because, I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, or maybe you have said, I can't believe in a God who would allow blah, fill in the blank, right? And at one level, we get it. I mean, we do. If you watched clips last month from that Parkland shooting sentencing sentencing hearing, and you looked at the eyes of those parents and what they had gone through, 
and the pain that they had endured. We get it. Um, we understand why we're tempted to soft-pedal God's absolute dominion when it comes to pain. But uh, God just doesn't do that. He doesn't. I, we could look at dozens of passages, but just let's consider one. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now, I myself am he, God speaking of himself. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one will deliver out of my hand. And that's exactly what Heman knew. Now, please do not hear me assigning malevolence or evil to God. When I was a young boy, I lived in the Arizona desert. And as you might imagine, it got really hot during the summertime. So, um, and I don't know if you've ever done this. Um, I used to get a magnifying glass out and focus the light of the sun on this little tiny section of the ground. And you could do really cool stuff with it, like make black spots on the sidewalks and burn grass and that kind of thing. But then I found out it worked really good with ants and stink bugs. You could just smoke them, just light them up. And um, did you not do this? (laughs) They sent me away for a very long time. (laughs) But... um, Sometimes we're inclined to think that God is just like that, right? That uh, if he is indeed sovereign, as we say, and all these terrible things are happening, he's either totally indifferent to our pain or he is a cosmic sadist. Well, he is neither. He is neither. Uh, Last year, uh, Joni Erickson Tata penned a blog that is worth reading called Ten Words That Changed My Life. Many, if not most of you, are probably familiar with her story. A quadriplegic from a diving accident at age 17 who has ministered for decades but recently suffered through some very painful bouts of both cancer and COVID. And she writes about being a teen shortly after the accident when she was left with all the questions. Where was God? Why was he absent? Why did he let this happen? Does he really love me? And she tells about a friend her age named Steve who journeyed with her during that period and he dedicated himself to searching the scriptures in order to help her make some sense of it. And as Steve put it, he was just sobered by it all. He had never met a person his age in a wheelchair. He had a lot of churchy answers, but he had not personally, in his words, test-driven them. But Steve concluded, if the Bible can't work in this paralyzed girl's life, then maybe it never really was for real. And so his conclusion was what the 10 words that she said would change the rest of her life. Steve's conclusion was this. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Now, being a good reformed guy, if I might be so bold, I might probably change one word. God doesn't just permit what he hates. He doesn't just allow it. Um, He ordains it. He orders it. He directs it. 
He orchestrates it, and he uses it. And it's almost as if you can hear him say to us in these moments, trust the process. You ever use that phrase? You've heard that phrase at work or something like that? Trust the process. You know, trust the system. Um, It's almost as if we can hear him say, I know the end from the beginning. The ancient of days, yet what is to come. I know exactly why this is happening, even though you don't. I've seen the completed tapestry. I know how the story ends. I know how I am going to get you where I want you to be. Trust the process, because in this case, the process involves pain. It involves suffering. It involves lament. So trust the process and trust me. Right? Now let's be real. All this sounds really good when things are going well. When trusting the sovereignty of God is just an academic exercise, it's not a hard test to pass. Yeah, there are some intellectual conundrums and paradoxes to reconcile, like God God sovereignly ordaining everything that comes to pass with the true human volition and responsibility. That's true. But that's not really the hard part. It really isn't. The hard part is when we revisit Heman's condition in the psalm. So that gets us to our third point. And just go back to the psalm and let your, let your eyes just kind of skim. What words stand out to you? These are the words I wrote down. Overwhelmed. Without strength. Set apart with the dead. Cut off. Confined without escape. Rejected. Close to death. In despair. Engulfed with terror. Now, don't just let your words or your eyes just float over those words. Feel the text. Feel the text. This is Haman's, Haman's real pain. This is Haman's genuine agony. This is his deep despair and his sadness. The point is, and this is the third point of godly lament, God doesn't want us to fake it. Our culture invites us to fake it, Remember, the American experience is full of rugged individualists shouting, we're living the high life, baby, right? Well, this is not the high life. This is the low life. These are the lowlands. These are the depths. This is, as the psalm says, the pit. Now, time doesn't permit, but do your best to remember the story of Jesus and Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary, as you know, are true friends of Jesus. He deeply cares for them. And Lazarus gets deathly ill. But ironically, Jesus does not go to him immediately. He waits. He tarries. And then, after Lazarus dies, Jesus says, I am going to wake him. Literally, I am going to raise him. And when he arrives, he's met with the expected family grief. Both Martha and Mary interact with Jesus separately, but they both say the same thing to him. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, at this point, you might expect Jesus to tell them to trust the process. 
And to some degree, he does when he tells Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives believing in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? And she says, yes, I do. But, but, the scripture also speaks of his encounter with Mary. And it records, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus, what? You know, what? He wept. Why? Why? Didn't Jesus know exactly what he was about to do? Of course he did. He'd already foretold it. In our modern way of thinking, um, Jesus probably could have turned to them and said, all right, Time to get the coolers out, bring out the ice chest, because when I am finished here, it's going to be better than Snoop Dogg on the beach with the corona. Right? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't offer a party. He doesn't, if for no other reason than he enters into their pain. And their pain is very real. His pain is very real. To Jesus, it seems Lazarus was just another sad, sad reminder of the broken fallenness of this world, a world spoken into existence through Christ himself. Jesus was, as the scripture says, deeply moved. In other words, he didn't fake, nor did he cover up his genuine grief and sadness. Now, this was Heman's pattern, too. He wasn't doing the tough guy, Harry Callahan, go ahead, make my day. He wasn't doing the stoic Buddhist Dalton and Roadhouse thing saying pain doesn't hurt. He wasn't the Christian with the pasted smile on his face. Oh, we're always supposed to be happy for Jesus. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-yay. We're happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. Nah. He didn't do that. Didn't do it at all. Now, let me make one foot stomp, teacher's foot stomp. Let me make one real foot stomp important caveat here. And this is something the Lord laid on my heart just this morning. Biblical lament and being real and not faking it is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for being a critical, unfriendly curmudgeon. There are people in this world and I can certainly be among them, whose spiritual gift is the gift of fault-finding. We regularly venture into negativity and complaining and whining. That is not lament. That is sin. Okay? But it's equally unjustifiable to ask people to engage in some kind of external behavior modification and paste smiles on their faces out of a misconstrued definition of Christian joy. Heman's pain did hurt. His tears were real, and he was unabashed in crying out to God like a child cries out to his parent. His cry wasn't profane, like some pastors suggest we do. I don't know if you've heard some pastors. It's okay, just cuss at God, you know. Well, holy cussing or swearing or something. Well, he kind of is the God of the universe, right? 
So maybe we ought to show him some reverence, even in our, in our pain and crying. But Heman's cry was genuine. It was real. And it was unrelenting. Unrelenting. So um, that gets us to our, um, our summary. Despite the messiness of, of lamenting well, a godly lament, despite the messiness of Psalm 88, Heman does give us this blueprint. First, keep coming back to God, even when it seems he's absent. I know it's easy to say and hard to do, but even when it seems that he's absent, keep coming back to God. Second, keep acknowledging that God is sovereignly orchestrating all of it for our good and his glory, even and especially when it doesn't seem like it. And third, don't fake it. The pain is real, the sadness is real, the despair is real, so don't pretend it's not. And that um, gets us to our last objective of the morning, the second main objective of the morning, uh, which is to explain why pain and lament, perhaps more than anything else, validates the truth of the gospel. Um, In the cinematic masterpiece, Rocky III, (laughs) which some of you are uh, old enough to remember, The antagonist, Clubber Lang, is asked to predict the outcome of his rematch with Rocky Balboa, the former champion who Clubber had already whooped up on the first time real good. And his response, prediction, pain. (laughs) So if you're taking notes, write down pain. Because as I've noted, pain is our modern Western culture's biggest problem with the idea of the Christian God, right? A Barna survey was done a couple of years ago in support of Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith, and it concluded, by far, the number one question that people wanted to ask God is why he allows pain and suffering in the world. All you have to do is read what people say after a tragedy to know it's a pretty common question and it's a pretty common objection. But of all the worldviews out there, the Christian worldview should have the best answer to that question. It should have a better answer to that question than any other system of thought. Why? Well, in his 2003 book, Long Journey Home, Oskinis recounts an event witnessed by then Baroness Caroline Cox, the CEO of Humanitarian Aid Release, and a member of the United Kingdom's parliament. Cox tells of a brutal raid in a Dinka village in Sudan where government soldiers butchered over 100 men, devastated the village, and carried away many more adults and children into slavery. Butchered over 100 men, devastated the village, and carried many more adults and children away into slavery. Cox described the human genocide as the worst moment in her many years of humanitarian relief. And then she described her best moment. Guinness writes, when the raid, with the raiders gone and the results of their cruelty all around, husbands slain, children kidnapped into slavery, homes ruined, and they themselves brutally raped, the few women still alive were pulling themselves together. 
Their first instinctive act was to make tiny crosses out of sticks lying on the ground and push them into the earth. What were they doing? Fashioning instant memorials to those that they had lost? No, Lady Cox explained, the crudely formed crosses were not grave markers, but symbols. The crossed sticks pressed into the ground at the moment when their bodies reeled and their hearts bled were acts of faith. As followers of Jesus of Nazareth, they knew they served a God who knew pain as they knew pain. Blinded by pain and grief themselves, horribly aware that the world would neither know nor care about their plight, they still staked out their lives on the conviction that there was one who knew and cared. They were not alone. Now, these women suffered the type of human cruelty that obviously and naturally we would do anything to avoid, right? It's the type of cruelty that, as I said, leads many to reject the idea of the Christian God. So why did those women not only accept the Christian God, but run to him, run to him in this moment of savagery? Because God himself wore their wounds. And as Guinness states, no other God has wounds. No other God has wounds. Now let's return one last time to Psalm 88. And let's dwell on verse 14, which reads, Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Does this remind us of anything? Does that text feel like something? To me, the text feels a lot like Psalm 22, particularly verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Now, of course, the cry of Psalm 22 was Jesus' final lament. And when we lament, we in some small way identify with his suffering. We reflect on his pain. We in some small way identify with what it took for him to do what he did on our behalf. To enter into a world of pain, to be known as a man of sorrows, and to die a death of excruciating pain and heartfelt lament. But... But pain is not the end of the story. The cross was not the end of the story. And our lament is not the end of the story. Let's return to the favorite Sunday school verse from the spring, for those of you who are in my class. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God where he is today and forever. Now I know uh, what you're thinking, at least I think I know what some of you are thinking. How can there be joy in my suffering? How can it really be, or is it really true, 
that it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. And is a sad face really good for the heart? And how does that square with the Apostle Paul's directive to rejoice always? And I say it again, rejoice. Well, recall what the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.13. But to the degree you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And remember what Paul himself tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Catch that. Preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They pass away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. In other words, even when darkness is our closest friend, eternal joy awaits us. Today's lament is tomorrow's exaltation. Or as the old saying goes, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. coming. Now, I don't welcome the circumstances of lament on anyone. Not anyone in this room. But when lamentation comes, and it most certainly will, in all kinds of different forms, in all sorts of different ways, lament well. Identify with your Savior. Remember his affliction, his pain, his sorrow. Thank him for it. Thank him for it. Reflect on what it took for him to go through So much more than what you did and what I have. And remember this, your lamentation is a passing shadow, even if it were a lamentation to last the rest of your life. In the context of eternity, it is a passing shadow. It's fleeting. It's transient. But if you are in Christ, your exaltation is forever. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard passages to wrestle with. The reality of pain and suffering and struggle in this world, the suffering that we see all around us. But help us in your goodness and your faithfulness and in the bounty of your word to draw near to you, to cry out to you, to recognize that it is part of your divine plan and you are doing it for your good, for our good and for your glory. And help us to identify with our elder brother who went before us, who loved us so much as to engage and incur incur the greatest lament of all. And when lament comes, Lord, by your grace, Help us to lament well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.